Hi everyone, welcome to the Shaker Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It's episode 52 today, it's the 29th of September, and today we are thinking about love and intimacy and the destruction of Western civilization. So welcome everyone to the podcast today. Um, we're thinking about something a little bit different today. Um, you know, I like to look at different topics and um, not necessarily having a particular theme, but just being free to explore different ideas. And today, something based on a couple of articles I read this week, I want to look at the problem of love and intimacy um, in the 21st century. And I think we, as a Western society, have got a big problem. And in fact, I think this really goes to the heart of the problem that we're facing as a society but it's one that we're not really talking about and people are beginning to talk about it a little bit but not very much but before we get on to that, there are just a few things that I would like to uh, to share with you. Um, these are, are links and things that I've seen over the last week, just as a kind of little summary. Um, if you'd like to, to skip on a bit on YouTube, I just link up the different sections so you can click on to the next one if, if this is uh, not of interest to you. But um, these are a few things that I'd like to share uh, just to highlight. So the first thing is um, an amazing uh, short video by the new Italian Prime Minister, uh, Giorgia Maloney. And um, it was astonishing. You know, she says, uh, we defend our identity. We defend God, country and family. Get over it. And uh, there's actually a longer video as well of her, uh, some of her speech. But it's just absolutely astonishing that this woman could be the new Prime Minister of uh, Italy. Um, because she seems to espouse something which I think up until fairly recently in many Western societies would have been just basic common sense. You know, that we um, we defend the family, we defend belief, uh, we you know, defend God, our, our identity as Christians and, um, you know, the kind of traditional values, really, values which I think many people in, in this country and across the Western world would still hold to, whether you're from the right or the left. I think many people still hold those kind of uh, traditional values. And it's interesting, the reaction to, to this. I mean, uh, just looking at some of the reaction on Twitter, people are already calling her far right, um, comparing her to Hitler uh, and all of that sort of thing, which I think just um, makes me think that she must be doing something right. But it is interesting how, um, you know, people have this reaction. I, I think part of it is because she is the she is a heretic to the new secular religion. You know, and this is the problem that there is this kind of new secular religion. And if you don't sign up to every tenet of it, then you're demonized. You're someone who is not, um, you know, you're not acceptable. And so uh, you must be cast out and, you know, smeared. And that's what's happening, I think, to her. I, I don't know much about her, so I don't know whether how much I would agree with all of her policies. But certainly from what she's said, it seems, you know, this is a, yeah, she's a good thing. And I'm, I think it, gives, it should give us all hope, you know, that this kind of thing is happening and can happen. And I think um, recently there was, um, is it in, in Holland? There was a vote and um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, Socialist Party, who have been running the country for many years, have kind of um, not got a majority now. So there is political change happening across Europe and across the Western world. And I think this is something which we need to, uh, you know, I think God is doing something here. And so we need to be encouraged and uh, I hope, you know, see, see change happening in our own country in the UK um, in the coming months. Um, another encouraging thing. This was on uh, TCW Defending Freedom, 
formerly the Conservative woman, uh, written by Tim Dieppe from Christian Concern. And the article is uh, The Parents' Victory Over School That Backed Gender Change Pupils Age 6. So um, there was a, a couple, Nigel and Sally Rowe, who sent their their child to a um, Church of England primary school. And um, the, one of the, the children or two of the, the, the boys in their class sort of gender transitioned to girls and they were told they had to refer to them using she and her. And so they complained about this. They did a court case and basically they won that. And the government have said that they are going to the government are going to sort of review um, uh, the, the, the guidance to schools. And I thought it was an, another encouraging story. As Tim Dieppe says, um, the moral of the story is that courage, conviction and perseverance in the truth eventually wins. The Rose were vilified, ostracised and lost friends for taking their stand. They persevered in the knowledge that what they were doing was right, not just for their children, but for all the school's pupils. In the end, they have been vindicated. I think this is an encouragement, not just on this particular issue, but for all of us who want to take a stand for the truth. You know that, yes, it's hard, but it is worth it to be brave, to stand up and to say, you know, I will not put up with being forced to live a lie. You know, I will stand up for the truth and you will not force me to to do anything which I believe to be wrong or which I believe to be untruthful. And I think that the stand that they made, the bravery that they took has been rewarded. And I just wish that more more people in the country had more courage, you know, because I think there are a lot of people who would perhaps quietly agree with them, but just not say anything for, for fear of not making, you know, not not wanting to make a fuss. Um, but if everyone does that, then this ideology will just, you know, run rampant. You know, this this requires bravery, this next step. And I hope their stand is something that, that should inspire us all to bravery as well. Um, another thing that happened this week, there's been a lot of news this week. Um, Dr. Asim Malhotra, who is a cardiologist, he there was a video of him on um, Good Morning, um, the, the morning TV programme last year, I think June last year, uh, saying to people, you know, to the vaccine hesitant, that it was safe to take the vaccine, that they could do so. And he, um, having experienced a tragedy in his own family, so I think his father, who was an honorary chair of the uh, British Medical Association, um, died. Uh, he was a healthy. He was a healthy man. You know, there was um, no no reason really for him to die. And um, and it turned out that um, Dr. Asim Malhotra was looking into this and found that it was the vaccine. And as he's gone through, he has found that um, there are big problems with the vaccine, with the safety. And so um, he's actually gone and published a couple of peer-reviewed scientific papers about this in the journal uh, Insulin Resistance. Um, but you can look at him. He's a, he's a good uh, speaker. He's very, you know, um, he, he knows what he's talking about. He's a good doctor. And uh, I'll just post a, one link um, interview with him. This was a link on GB News from a couple of days ago. Um, but uh, he's also, I mean, there, there, if you just Google him, there are lots of interviews and things. You can find his piece. He's on Twitter uh, and so on. So I'll just post a link to that that interview that he did. Um the final thing that I wanted to mention today, so I said there's a lot of news today, but I just thought there was a really interesting thread on Twitter about the way that finance is working or not working in the world at the moment. 
Now, over this last week, there's been a huge furore about uh, Liz Truss's uh, tax-cutting plans, and of course, that's that's been big news. But there was a thread on Twitter from someone who is saying, talking about how things are going to get very, very bad, and a large part of the problem is, you know, that the national debt is massive, uh, and this was looking at America. But it is just incredible the amount of debt that countries are in. And you can't just solve those problems by printing money. And um, it's just looking at the problems that we're facing. And none of the, the problems actually have any easy solutions. And it looks like we are going to be going through a very difficult time as a country and, and across the Western world. Um, and uh, yeah. I thought I thought it was an interesting and thought-provoking thread anyway, thinking about where we are. So I'll post a link to that down below. It's quite long, but uh, I think if, if you've got a few minutes, if you've got five minutes or so, it's worth a little read just to kind of explain the, the problems of where we are uh, financially at the moment. Um, so we're going to move on in a moment then to the main section, thinking about love and intimacy. Um, I just wanted to say, if you'd like to support the podcast, then uh, you can... On, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can like uh, the the episode. You can also su subscribe to the channel, and that would help me out. Uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, if your podcast provider allows you, then please leave me a rating. If you have got a minute, you could leave me a review as well, as that helps other people to find the show. If you'd like to support me in a financial way, there is a link to buy me a coffee as well. That's probably the easiest way of doing things. Um, I don't want to give out my PayPal link, actually, after what happened with the um, cancelling of the Daily Skeptic and everything um, last week, although they've been reinstated, but I, I don't want to you know, give PayPal any support. But the buy me a coffee link is there, and uh, that doesn't use PayPal, so you can you can donate that way. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who has uh, supported me in all sorts of ways. I really do appreciate the messages that people send through, that, you know, if, if these are helpful to you, all of that. Uh, if you'd like to um, to get in touch, if you'd like to, you know, chat about it, uh, anything, you know, you want to have a discussion or, you know, that this has been helpful, then you can do that on Telegram. There is a Telegram group um, and the link is down below. Uh, you can leave a comment on YouTube or you can email me through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com and maybe even I might... Um, uh, respond in a in a future podcast um, if you don't mind me uh, reading your email out all that sort of thing so yeah thanks so much everyone for for all of that support uh, let's move on now to the main section of the podcast Okay, so today in the main section we are looking at love and intimacy and the fall or the destruction of Western civilization. And I know that that may seem a little apocalyptic, um, but I think that there is a real uh, truth in this and I will explain why in a moment. So this has been inspired this week by uh, reading a couple of articles that I found and uh, let me just quote you from them both. So um, the first one is an article on the Christian Concern website, which is just simply reporting a government report which had been made. Uh, so let me read you what they say. Currently, 23% of UK families are lone parent. That's nearly one in four. In Europe, the average share of families headed by a lone parent is 13%. The UK is a staggering 10% higher than this. In the vast majority of UK cases, 
these lone parent families are caused by relationship breakdown between the parents. Perhaps the most disturbing statistic in the review is the finding that 44% of children born in 2000 to 2001 did not live with their biological parents throughout their childhood. That's a huge portion of children who have experienced the damaging effects of family instability. Okay, there's a uh, the couple of major statistics there are that you know, nearly one in four families are lone parents in the UK, and that 44% of children who were born around the turn of the the century, uh, around 2000, did not live with their biological parents throughout their childhood. I think that is an astonishing statistic, but it is actually borne out by. Uh, my experience in in this in this town pastorally that as I've been talking to people getting to know parents through uh, through church through church groups through school it does seem that this is the case Um, I know I can count uh, certainly I think about six or seven couples I know who I knew you know through sort of connections in this area who have split in the last two years it's been phenomenal you know i think covid has the lockdowns and so on have accelerated that but you know it was happening before i think perhaps covid has made things worse but yeah it's staggering the amount of relationship breakdown that there is and the number of children you know even children who are living with two parents are not necessarily living with biological parents so very often it's so common for a child to be um you know uh, there there to be two people um, living together generally not married of course who have maybe a, a child or two within that relationship but then there will be children from other relationships who are either living with them or maybe living with another parent who are you know they're sort of sharing and that's so common it is unbelievably common and this is what is being reflected in the statistics and I think this is a crisis which we are just simply not talking about you know this is a yeah this is um this level of statistic you know this level of family breakdown and and so on is something that's just being overlooked um but it, we are at a crisis point I would say and this is the, one of the worst things that's happening today and we are simply not talking about it the other thing that I saw, the other article that I read, was looking at polyamory. And this is an article written in The Spectator by Mary Wakefield. Uh, interestingly, I found that she's uh, Dominic Cummings' wife. So, um, yeah, I thought that was that was interesting. But anyway, um, this is an article about polyamory. So let me quote to you a few bits from this article as well, just to kind of explore where we are at the moment as a society. The saddest thing I saw this week was a dating advert written by a woman, let's call her Jane, looking for a man to start a family with. Jane is also polyamorous. She mentioned in the ad, just in passing. She is in a committed romantic relationship with three other people. and They live in a shared house. And this, I've discovered, is par for the course now in parts of London and across the US. Some 5% of Americans say they're polyamorous, and given that almost everyone over 50 is monogamous, this means an awful lot of poly youth. So I think this, 
gives an indication of the scale of the, the way things have changed. Uh, 5% of Americans say they're polyamorous. And I think Mary Wakefield makes a very good point that that means that's a heck of a lot of under 50s. Um, you know, if, if no one over, uh, or pretty much no one over is polyamorous. And, uh, you know, you might think, well, 5%, that's quite insignificant. But, you know, you think about how many of the population are homosexual. You know, the estimates are 2 3%, maybe. Um, it's it's quite a small percentage. How many are transgender? You know, 5% 5, 5 saying they're polyamorous, that's a very big thing. It made me think, actually, a few years ago, uh, when the same-sex marriage bill was going through Parliament, I would I was exploring all of this and you know thinking about the different ideas involved. And one of the things which I I and many others are making the point is that if you enable same-sex marriage and you redefine marriage in that way, then why not enable polygamy or polyamory and make that a kind of legal arrangement? And so many of um, that the people who actually bothered to respond to me or, you know, who, who would debate would, would just say, well, that's a straw man. You know, that's a slippery slope argument. That's never going to happen. And I think that, you know, I and many other people have been vindicated or are being vindicated by this because it is growing. And it's not just an intellectual and academic exercise anymore. It's a growing thing. And so, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the beginning of it. That's, that's the scale of it. So what's the issue with polyamory? Let, let me read you a bit further on from the, um, from the article. So here's Jane nestled in her polycule. Um, a polycule, by the way, explained within uh, earlier on in the article is uh, that arrangement, you know, living together with two or three other people. Enjoying an earnest and ethical life. Here's Jane in a committed relationship with three people but still at a total loss for someone to have a child with. And this is what I find sad, that there are growing numbers of polyamorous women out there desperately seeking what they refer to as nesting relationships, women who thought they were liberated, but who have nonetheless been blindsided by biology. They want a child, and what sounds suspiciously like a husband, but they're sunk now, aren't they? I admire them for their optimism, but how many men are going to jump at the chance to parent in a polycule? Yes, love, don't worry. I'll hold the baby while you give Hugo his Thursday sex massage. The trouble is that they've defined love not as self-sacrifice, but as self-fulfilment. And it's a rare man who considers it more personally fulfilling to burp a whinging baby than to, say, go out scouting for a younger polyamorist. I think that nails it. It's This is savage. <laughs> I, I love what she says. It's absolutely savage. But it is absolutely necessary and true that you know, people living in a polyamorous relationship, they're not doing it because of the benefit of the other person. They're not doing it out of love. They're doing it out of a, a sense of, of personal self-fulfillment. As she completely correctly observes, uh, the trouble is that they've defined love not as self-sacrifice but as self fulfillment and i think she raises a good point about um you know bringing up a child in such an arrangement you know which man if if the relationships are about self-fulfillment and having a you know a convenient woman there to you know to to service your own needs so to speak if you'll excuse me putting it crudely 
But, um, you know, if that's what she's there for, then having a child and fathering a child is not going to be on your agenda, is it? And that, I think, is tragic. It's absolutely tragic that we are in this situation and that particularly, you know, young women are feeling like they've been put into this situation. Let me just read the, um, uh, another quote from the article, just one more quote from this article. It's oddly frowned on these days to think about things from the perspective of the children. Perhaps it interferes with all the self-fulfilment. Happy parents make a happy child is as close as anyone gets. And that's blatantly untrue. As long as the kids' parents aren't screaming or hitting each other, I'm not sure it much notices if they're actively happy. A child has different needs, unconditional love and a set of parents to bond with. And this is where polyamory becomes very far from rational or ethical. And again, I think Mary Wakefield is absolutely right here to to say that a polyamorous relationship is destructive to children. That, you know, children don't need uh, don't need parents to be, you know, self-fulfilled in that sense. They need parents who love them and who will put them first and put their needs first and you know want want to see them grow up well and and so on um and i think it's a very narcissistic society where we think that if we are personally self-fulfilled then you know other people will be personally self-fulfilled and so therefore what we need is to make the world conform to our expectations and then everything will be just fine you know that's not how it works and we'll come on to that in just a moment um but yeah, the, the idea that happy parents make happy children, well, I, I think there is a, you know, more than a grain of truth in that, but that, you know, that, that happiness is not found in uh, seeking to, to conform and making everyone fulfil our own needs. And particularly when there are, you know, two or three parents involved, sort of um, a, a third or a fourth parent even involved, then that is very unsettling. Uh, for children really not good for them and as she says that's where it becomes very far from rational or ethical so what is the problem here what is the root of the problem uh what's the problem with polyamory and what what's really going on underneath the problem is that love is not about seeing other people as a vehicle to fulfil our own needs. That is not love. Love is actually about putting others first and focusing on their needs rather than our own. And love is healthy. You know, love is, is natural and healthy and that is how we will best, uh, best thrive as human beings. There was a book by um, Tim Keller, Timothy Keller, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And it's only a short book. I think it's an extract from a longer book, if I remember rightly. But this is um, all about, really, the freedom of how we find true meaning and purpose in our lives and contentment and joy and all of those things. When we, in a sense, forget our own needs and not don't navel-gaze and focus on our own needs but instead look to the needs of those around us and we look to love. And that is actually when we find true joy and contentment. 
And um, the problem is that when we see other people as merely there to meet our own needs and to fulfil us, we won't actually find fulfilment. It's the tragic irony of the situation. Um, and so, you know, that that is that is a big part of the problem that love now is not love. Love is, is seen as about self-fulfilment and it actually cuts us off from the thing that we really need. And I think this is particularly the case in relationships which are supposed to be our most intimate and loving relationships. Um, you know, that, that sexual intimacy in particular is meant to be love in its most intense kind of physical form. That sexual intimacy is supposed to be about love above all things. And it's the most loving act that, that we can do in, you know, as human beings. It's the most loving thing that we can do to, you know, the, the euphemism, which um, is sometimes called is making love. And that used to be more common, but it's not so much anymore. Um, but I think that is absolutely the way that it should be. You know, it should be about making love between two people. It should be an expression of love, not about uh, just wanting someone else to fulfill your needs in that physical sense. Now, sexual intimacy was never intended to be separated from love in fact it says there's a lovely euphemism which um, the bible uses for sexual intimacy uh, just for example genesis chapter 4 verse 1 it says now adam knew eve his wife that sexual intimacy is uh, the euphemism is to know and to know is to love as they say you know that knowing someone deeply is supposed to be linked with love with sexual intimacy but, of course, all of that's been taken away and sexual intimacy is only seen as a vehicle for self-fulfillment. You know, and that's that's using someone else rather than loving someone else. And when we start to use other people rather than love them, that's when problems really start, especially in our most intimate relationships. By the way, um, if you would like anything, uh, like um, to, to see more about love, intimacy and sex in the Bible, then I did a couple of videos on my um, other channel on Understand the Bible about Song of Songs. And this is, uh, Song of Songs is all about love and, and sexual intimacy, uh, but not in a, you know, kind of a, um, uh, a graphic way, if you like, but just talking about the, the way that the, the love sort of binds them together. And I, I was last year I really wanted to look into Song of Songs and you know think about what it says to us so I did a couple of videos on Understand the Bible I'll try and link them uh, down below as well if you're interested. Um, so what's the problem then with loveless sex? What, what um, dangers are there? What happens when this kind of thing takes hold and become especially when it becomes commonplace? Well I think Firstly, there's a danger to children. I think it has a danger and, and a harmful effect on children. Um, children need unconditional love to thrive. And if their parents simply uh, see each other as a vehicle to self-fulfillment, then that's harmful to the children. Um, there was, um, If you look, there's a website called anonymousus.org which talks about the stories of children who have been uh, brought into the world through anonymous third-party reproduction. 
And many of the stories there talk about the feelings that these children have as they grow up of knowing that, you know, they don't know one of their birth, uh, their sort of biological parents because they were just a sperm donor or an egg donor and how how that makes them feel, you know, as if they've just been brought into the world for their parents' convenience rather than being brought into the world, uh, you know, by through love and, you know, and so on. I think it's, although it's not directly talking about, you know, loveless sex, as it were, I think it does show that children need that love to thrive and survive. And, um, I mean, even in my own experience, if I think back to when I was at school, and, you know, perhaps many of us would have had this same experience who, who were raised in a similar time, that there were children in my school who were you know that we knew who the inverted commas problem children were you know the ones who would who would be naughty who would misbehave and and, and skip school and so on and almost always they were from broken families and um and that the thing is that's the case for everyone or almost everyone now certainly a, a majority or a, a, a very large minority of children are in that situation of being you know from a sort of kind of a what would have been called a broken family years ago and that's just normal now and you know this is the problem that we are creating for ourselves so i think there's a danger to children i think there's also a danger to to people but especially to women um this is a a point that um, louise perry makes in her book the case against the sexual revolution and there are lots of good interviews with louise perry around they did one on speak life um a few weeks ago um but yeah louise perry's new book the case against the sexual revolution but she says the world is set up at the moment which is in a way which is very convenient for men but not so for women because it seems to uh, to to buy into male sexual desire of you know men tend to prefer you know casual encounters casual sex and you know not not committing and that's something which men will will tend towards whereas women will not but women are being forced into that kind of um into that kind of um you know relationship because that's all that's on offer and so that's what louise perry at the point that she makes and um and she says, you know, it's harmful for people who, well, those who tend to be more committed or desire to bring up children, which is, you know, tends to be women, uh, is deeply harmful to, for women because that's not what most women want. And um, I think, you know, we are actually living in a society which is, you know, very toxic to women, which is very toxic to, um, you know, what women really, really want. Uh, but not because there's a glass ceiling. Uh, not because women are being held back, but actually because women are not allowed to to want the things which women typically have wanted, which is you know to be a wife, mother, uh, and and you know to have that kind of nurturing role in in the family. That that's not valued at all, and all they're there for is to be sexual objects. And I think in my experience again, I think there are there's a huge um, problem with mental health at the moment among you know generally speaking but i think it's there's a big problem with women um i think women tend to suffer more obviously this kind of thing is is affects both men and women but i think women tend to suffer more as a result of it 
and partly that's because you know they have to bear the burden of being used and bear the burden perhaps of raising children who they um you know without the the, the father um so yeah i think we live in a world which which is not good for anyone but i think it really hates women and, and children um at the moment and that's the problem with the world that that we've created And so what's going to be the end result of all of this? And if you'll excuse me, um, kind of being a little apocalyptic, I have put the ultimate destruction of society. And I think this is, I know, I know it's apocalyptic, but I think this is justifiable. That society is built on uh, relationships of love and trust. Now, society requires love in order to function. It requires us to get on with each other. And everything is built on that, really, isn't it? All of our work, all of our, you know, social networks, everything is really has to be built on love. Now, if our most intimate relationships are not loving and trusting, then can we expect the rest of society to be? That is the question that I think we have to grapple with. If there are problems with our most intimate relationships, that is going to spread out like gangrene, isn't it? You know, it's going to spread like a like a virus. That is actually the real contagion, is that lack of love. As Jesus said, Matthew uh, chapter 24, verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And I think that is what's happened, that, you know, that when the love has gone out of our most intimate relationships that will then affect the rest of society and it's going to fall apart and that's why i think we are seeing what we are seeing when it comes to to social disintegration and um i think this will end up if we carry on down this path with the destruction with the disintegration of society of western society completely and there was some research about this and i wish i could find it now because um, I, I can't remember where I originally saw it. It, it was some years ago. But um, saying that when society sort of gives in to licentiousness and sexual desire, then it, it basically decays and implodes. And I believe there was some research looking at this when it came to empires and how when they sort of gave in to licentiousness, the empires would collapse. And that was what happened with the Roman Empire. Um, this This was arguing. Um, I think there were many reasons for the fall of the Roman Empire, actually, but certainly that was a factor. Um, the Romans were pretty, you know, licentious, um, even perhaps more so than today. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, what we're heading for is um, societal disintegration and collapse. And that's because there's just no love. There's no glue to hold us together. We're all atomized and we're all just looking for other people to you know, to, to fulfil our needs, to use them to fulfil our needs rather than to love them and to do what is right and good. And it starts with our most intimate and uh, the relationships which are supposed to be most intimate and loving. That's where it begins. And I think that's where it needs, it, you know, it needs to start changing as well in those those relationships. So is there any hope? Is it possible to fix the love problem well, I'm going to read and just finish by reading one passage which is often read at weddings. 
and this is uh, 1, 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 to 16. This is one of the two passages which people have at weddings. The other one is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and I find in my experience having the weddings I've conducted that one to be more popular. Um, but this one also is, is read at weddings. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. I think this is a deeply profound passage which... Um, I think you know if anyone listening or, or watching you know if you if you have a few minutes afterwards or a few minutes later or, or this week maybe just open that passage up you know 1 John chapter 4 7 to 16 and just think about what it means and really reflect on those words because I think they are profound you know that God is love he is the source of love that anyone who lives in God lives in love and that it is actually when we seek him, when we turn to him and find his love, that, that he gives us the power to love ourselves. And one of the, the things which I found most distressing, I suppose, about, about the church is so often it's a place where you don't find very much love. And I found, you know, behaviour in the church, um, and I'm not talking about any particular church, uh, but, you know, just all over the place, which... Uh, would not be tolerated in a secular organization and that's deeply wrong and that's so deeply wrong because you know as Christians we should be living in love and you know when we come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus then we that transforms us and we want to love others and um, I think that's where the solution to this problem is found ultimately that it is when we know God and when we turn to him, that we find love ourselves. And that is when I think we'll actually start to be happy. When we start to find love and when we come to him. Now, God is the source of love. When we turn away from him, we cut ourselves off from the source and we lose that love ourselves. As Jesus says, the love will grow cold. When we turn to God, then we regain. Then we, we get what we're supposed to, to have, that love and the way that life is supposed to be lived. So I think love is is the key, and we will find that when we turn to God, when we live in him. And um, yeah, that's that's what's going to change society. So yeah, I just wanted to say that to encourage us, really. This is not um, 
you know, this is a message, I suppose, you know, we do need to be telling people if we're Christian, telling people about God's love and, and pointing the way. We need to be loving people as well. But I think, you know, if we look to God and if he changes us, if he gives us that love, people will see and people will know. And I think people know what real love is. People can feel it. And when they feel and experience that love, that is what will bring a real change. So it's a yeah encouragement and a challenge. And I hope that this is something that we'll be able to take into this coming week, just looking for, for that love to transform our relationships, to transform society. So all of that said, I hope that you've, you've enjoyed that. Do uh, leave me any comments, uh, Telegram or YouTube or email, if you've, um, you'd, you've got anything you'd like to add to that. Um, but let's finish with a reflection from the Bible, from the Psalms. so let's finish the podcast today with a reflection on psalm 76 this is a sort of a uh, not a very long psalm 12 verses so i'll read it out and then I'll, I'll just share one or two thoughts about it god is renowned in judah in israel his name is great his tent is in salem his dwelling place in zion there he broke the flashing arrows the shields and the swords the weapons of war you are radiant with light more majestic than mountains rich with game. The valiant lie plundered, they sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. It is you alone who are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounced judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. When you, God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfil them. Let all the neighbouring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Okay, that's a lovely psalm, and I think it's, um, again, it's well worth spending a bit of time thinking about. But there are just one or two things that I would like to to bring out. Um, the thing which really jumped out at me is in the second half of the psalm, it talks about how God pronounced judgment uh, when God rose up to save all the afflicted of the land. Thinking about how God does step in sometimes. And um, we've seen that through history, you know, that that um, unjust, that injustice cannot sort of simply flourish and God not notice that he cares about these things and that he will step in and that he, he will act to save those who are afflicted. And this is something that uh, I think we can, it should give us confidence, you know, that the Lord sees and hears and, and acts when it, it comes to injustice. And that that's something that we can plead when we pray. We can say, you know, well, we know, God, you are a God of justice. Um, what what are, What is happening about the injustice that we see? Um, and so, you know, God can rise up. But the, the, the verse which I think particularly struck me is in verse 10. It says, surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. I don't know that we ever really talk about God like that that because God is you know wrathful is has anger then he is praised 
But actually, if you think about it, you know, if God did not get angry at injustice, then he wouldn't really be God, would he? Because he wouldn't really be just. He wouldn't re- be doing what is right. And we know that God is perfect justice and love. Um, he is everything good, uh, perfectly and fully, no, completely. He could not be more just. He could not be more loving. And so when it says your wrath against mankind brings you praise, I think what it's saying is God is perfect justice and he will, in his anger, deal with injustice. And we know as Christians, of course, God's justice fell on Jesus at the cross for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who who believe and trust in him, who repent of sin and trust in Jesus. Uh, But then it goes on to say the survivors of your wrath are restrained And I think what this is saying again is that those who are committing injustice are restrained by God's anger. And when they they step over a line, God steps in. And I wonder if that is what I I think is about to happen. You know, the, the difficulties that we're going through, the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, the migrant crisis, all of these kind of things are actually a result of God's anger against us for turning away from him. And what God is doing is he is restraining. He's going to restrain those who are committing these acts because it is, you know, they've stepped over uh, that line. And you know, it's not good. These things are not just going to go on forever, but that God is going to to bring about a real change. I was watching a video earlier today and someone um, talking about the problems with, um, oh, well, it, it, yeah, I won't go into all of it, but someone just left a comment saying, could the you know politicians in Westminster be, it's like they're living in a completely alternate reality to that of most people. And I think that is that is the case, it seems to me, that they are living in an alternate reality. And I think this is going to be a healthy dose of reality to wake them up. You know, this is god's way of waking waking up um them to what's happening but but you know i hope the rest of society so what should we do what should we do and this is what the psalm finishes with make vows to the lord your god and fulfill them let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared so is it just carry on doing what god wants you to be doing you know keep trusting in him keep serving him keep uh, putting him first and seeking to do what is right and loving. That's the only way. That's what we need to carry on doing. Just commit ourselves to running the race which God has laid before us, whatever that may be, in serving him. And it says, it finishes off, he breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Now, he's the one who breaks the spirit and uh, of rulers and is feared by the kings of the earth. You know, he can deal with them. It's not up to us. At the end of the day, that God will, you know, when rulers do what is wrong, he can make them face up to the consequences of their actions and he can bring change. And I think that's what we are going to see. And that's what we are beginning to see now. So it's a positive thing. You know, we commit ourselves to doing good and seeking the Lord and let him take care of the rulers and the kings of the earth, uh, because we know Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, ultimately. And so, you know, let's commit ourselves to doing good. Let's seek, uh, let's seek the Lord and, you know, let's look to him for the way ahead. Uh, I thought that was a real encouragement to me as I read that psalm. And I hope it's an encouragement to you as well. Psalm 76. 
So let's finish now the podcast with a prayer and ask for God to take care of uh, all of these things. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the encouraging news that has happened this week and pray for your blessing upon those people who are brave enough to stand up and be counted, who are brave enough to uh, to stand up and say this is wrong. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would inspire us with their bravery, bless them and, and help us to share that same brave spirit. Please help us to know as well when it is right to stand up and say something and perhaps when it is right not to, just to have that wisdom about when it is right to take a stand. We pray, Lord, that you would um, be with us uh, when it comes to love. Uh, we ask that you would give us that love, Lord, and all across our society, we ask that you would grant real love and especially in our most uh, intimate and closest relationships, that you would fill um, fill us as a, as a country, as a society with love and you would transform us from the the closest relationships out and that uh, you would bring about a real change uh, for the for the benefit of our whole society especially uh, as we were thinking about with women and children and we pray lord that you would help us to trust you to um, commit ourselves to you and our course to you and trust you through all that happens knowing that you have kings and rulers in your hands and we can trust you to do what is just and right Please lead us and guide us this week, we pray, and keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for joining me today. Just a little reminder that there's Telegram or YouTube comments or email sacredmusingspod at gmail.com if you'd like to get in touch. And there's also a Buy Me A Coffee link if you'd like to support me in that way as well. I really do appreciate it. And don't forget to like, subscribe on YouTube, or if you can, leave a rating, even a review in your podcast provider if you're listening. So, yeah, God bless everyone. I look forward to seeing you again uh, next week. But uh, take care and I'll see you later.